Welcome back to the summer series of Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Winter, author and nonfiction book coach. Today we are revisiting my conversation with Abigail Bergstrom. Abigail is a literary agent and founder of Bergstrom Studios. She's also a novelist. When we recorded this episode, her debut novel, What a Shame, had just been released and it's now out in paperback. Abigail is one of my favorite people in publishing. She's full of fantastic advice, whether you're a nonfiction or a fiction writer. You are going to get lots out of this episode. My autumn nonfiction book proposal program begins October 10th. If you would love to turn your book idea into a full proposal by the end of 2023, then this might be the right program for you. You can sign up to the waitlist at pennywinserwrites.com. The link is in the show notes. Places will be on sale in September and they are likely to sell out, so do go on that list if you would love a place. Enjoy the episode. It's so lovely to have you, Abigail. Yay, I'm so happy to be here, Penny. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> oh, it's such a pleasure. Um, I should probably forewarn the 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 um the listeners that Abigail and I do know each other quite well. We do. <laughs> but it's just so lovely to be able to have this chat. We were just saying earlier before we started recording that it's such an interesting perspective that you have as now um an author, an agent, and also you have been an editor. And that's a probably a fairly unusual perspective to have in the industry. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, there probably are a, a small handful of us, but yeah, it's been. Um, I guess I spent my fir- the first five years of my career working as an agent in ha- uh, working as an editor. Sorry, in house at a publishing house, where I was commissioning books. Um, and the first book I ever commissioned was Laura Bates's Everyday Sexism, and I built a list there that was quite kind of. Um, feminist and uh kind of social justice led uh and I absolutely loved that but decided to move across onto what they call the dark side of publishing (laughs) and become an agent um I think because I was really charmed by the idea of working with authors um more long term to kind of like strategize their career and think about how they could be putting their content out in different ways on different platforms moving across different genres um so it really appealed to me to be part of that like career building and strategizing and planning um and then yeah eventually came to set up my own business uh, Bergstrom Studio which effectively I think is a is a, a place for me to be able to do all those things. I, mm. I work as an editor and I help authors um, who are trying to get published or indeed who already are published. I also do agenting and have a kind of focused list. And then I'm pursuing my own writing um, as well. So it's, yeah, amazing to be able to do all of those things. And yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, a really, it's a really unique position. I love that you've crafted your career to kind of incorporate all the aspects that you enjoy. But let's start with um, What a Shame, first of all. Um, It is so, so beautiful. Um, And I really wanted to talk to you about this idea um, that you explore in it of grief and the Mm. different kinds of grief that that Matilda goes through. Um, I particularly love the way in the beginning, and I don't know if it's too much of a spoiler to say that there is a a big breakup and a death in her family. Mm. And, um, and, the way that you write that you write about the way that Matilda talks about um, those two things kind of merging together and kind of yeah. feeding each other, and you never 
quite know in the beginning who she's talking about, which grief she's talking about. And I yeah. loved that. And I just, I guess I wanted to ask you, like, right from the beginning, is that something you knew you wanted to do? Definitely. Yeah. I I, I wanted to do something that, because, because grief is so disorientating, I wanted to employ a literary device that would create that experience for the reader. And so, um, I came up with this idea to use second person narration. So there's like a you character that Matilda, the protagonist, is addressing throughout the book. But you can't tell whether at times she's referring to this ex-boyfriend who's very suddenly up and left her um, out of the blue with sort of no rhyme or reason or her father who has quite tragically died and she's still kind of trying to come to terms with that. Um and it's, and it's an interesting one, actually. And I'm really pleased that you said that you liked it because it's definitely one of the most controversial things about the book, I think, mm. in terms of the reviews that I've had. Some people really got on board with that disorientation and let go of being like, wait a minute, who's, she, who's Matilda talking to here? Who's she dr- addressing here? And other people were really battling with like, oh, this is confusing. I don't know. And flicking back and trying, you know, thinking, I, I guess, that they were missing something or they weren't reading the book uh, properly, you know, accurately. But it, it is one of those things you just got to let go and be in it and give up on that because... And yeah, the point was exactly that, to give the reader that physical experience of the disorientation of grief via the protagonist's experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely loved it. And um, and I don't always like second person, but the thing, the thing that's so interesting about the second person is it's, it is incredibly intense and disorienting, isn't it? Because yeah. you're kind of constantly putting yourself in somebody's shoes in a way that's not comfortable. Um, yeah. And I thought it worked really beautifully in this case. And we should say as well it's not it doesn't it doesn't always feel this way there are just moments in the novel that drift into the second person a lot of it yeah it's a sprinkling it's sprinkling exactly um and yeah I just thought it was such an effective way um of exploring this idea of grief and and the other idea as well of of kind of almost having both of those griefs side by side was so interesting Mm. I have a friend who went through a very similar kind of breakup to what Matilda has goes through in in the book or has just gone through Mm. and I remember at the time we were we were probably about 30 at the time and I remember her being so frustrated that nobody understood her grief because partly because they weren't married and they had been together for about seven years um but people didn't seem to um allow her her grief because Mm -hmm. it wasn't a divorce it wasn't a death um and and I, that really struck me, um, this idea of how, in a way, we sort of, we like to kind of, um, I guess, grade grief yes. and and sort of give it a level of importance um, in a way that isn't actually true to how we feel grief when we when we yes. go through it. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think I think so often in um, books, television, culture, grief is. Uh, projected or uh, described or shown to us to be quite linear yeah and it's not at all it's in you know grief is sort of thing that sometimes sometimes <laughs> my therapist told me this thing and I, and I think it's so interesting but if you imagine your life is like a square mm-hmm. and sometimes grief can be this tiny little dot at the bottom of the square and it's totally manageable and it's just a little smudge on your day and then the very next day that small dot can blow up and fill the entire square and 
all these high waves of grief is all you can be in or experience. And I think the kind of move back and forth between that and how kind of, yeah, how, 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 how quickly you can oscill- oscillate between those two things isn't always fully explored. There's kind of a linear process of overcoming grief. And I also think there's a, there's a time frame that people allow you, yes. you know, to, yeah. with which to get over and recover from something, which just isn't the case. And the, the, the place in which I wanted to start Matilda's story is six, seven months down the line after these mm. things have sort of happened and the people around her are like, okay, past we know- your, You're past this acceptable period of grief now. Yes, yeah. yeah. Like people have stopped bringing flowers and cooking her food and her friends are all like, why are you still wearing those dungarees? Like you're really dragging us down. Like people are expecting her, like it's time now, Matilda, for you to start moving forward. And she is stuck completely stuck in this immovable grief and she doesn't understand why and 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 part of that transpires to be to do with a kind of um unblocked trauma that she's got and that's what the book goes on very complex relationship that 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 she had with the person that died and this is um this is yeah i i loved the way that you dealt with that because I feel like it's um, it's something we're still not necessarily very good at talking about. And it's certainly been my experience as well that grief resurfaces with new griefs. So a breakup, every mm. time I've had a breakup in my adult life, um, yeah. I've like missed my mum terribly. Like it's sort of yeah. a new, I get kind of hit with a huge wave of grief for her because um I'm experiencing a grief for something else. It's like yeah, it's it almost triggers the wound. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It it's that, sort of, yeah. that deeper wound. Yeah. Um, exactly that, and and I think it's such a such an interesting and important point that you make about the value of grief being pl- placed differently. And interestingly, I read this piece yesterday in Refinery Twenty Nine about this young girl who'd been with her partner for seven years. They traveled the world together. They had this amazing life. Um, were madly in love. And he very sadly died of cancer, but she can't call herself a widow because technically they weren't married and that people's response to it is like, oh, well, you're still young and you've got your whole life ahead of you. And there's this, she's, she's a bit like, I'm dying on the inside and I'm in She's had her, the life that was imagined taken away, you know, but also she's had a, she's had a life. She's yeah. had a lot, like she's had seven years, yeah. which is a lot longer than many marriages last, right? Yes. Or even if you think back in time to earlier history when we weren't living as long, like seven years is a long time. And it's a long time. Yeah. It makes me think about even like grief around animals when our pets die. You yeah. know, for some people that could be hugely trauma- traumatic. For other people, mm. maybe less so, like, oh, the dogs died. You know, the kids are a bit upset, but it's okay. So, yeah, I, th- I just think it's so individual, the experience yeah. of grief, right? It's so unique. And I just think that's such a great point that you make and so interesting. I just wanted to circle back to it and be like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I should also say it's a very funny book as well for anyone yeah. that's <laughs> It's entirely serious. It is, um, and, and that's one of the joys of reading it. It is both um, deeply dark and deeply funny at the same time um and I I mean I love I have to say I personally really enjoyed all of the stuff around Hatch about this this agency (laughs) she works in and I'm sure anyone who works in a creative industry in London will enjoy that very much um it has a real kind of Nathan Barley-esque kind of feel um and you're just completely rooting for Matilda the whole time um but the other thing that I really wanted to touch on a bit is, is all these really rich 
female relationships within the book. Um, mm. And they're really varied. And I particularly loved Constance. She's such an interesting character. And I, I guess I wanted to know as well, like, at what point did you know that Matilda needed somebody like Constance in her life? Um, yeah. Is that something that happened very early on writing the novel? Or is that something that came a bit later? No, it's it's something that came really early on, actually. Just because I think as a woman, I feel tired and frustrated by the way that female friendship is projected back at us. Mm, And, you know, if you think of like the really classic mainstream examples like Sex and the City or Golden Girls or Lena Dunham's Girls, the bold type being a more recent example, it's kind of this idea of three or four very close ride or die friends that are there for you all the time, no matter what, and you're in each other's every day. And of course, like for so many women, that's not our experience of female friendship. And I was really interested in this idea of transient friendship. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the book, Matilda because of her breakup, she goes to move into this shared living space with three other women who were all at different crossroads in their life. None of them expected to be ending up living together. They've all sort of been thrown together in this sort of chaotic way that's quite jarring. And, you know, the relationship with Georgia, who's the woman who owns the house, her and Georgia have been friends for a very, very long time, but it sort of ebbed and flowed in the sense they've gone through periods they've been very, very close and they've gone through periods where they've not been in touch that much which is like completely the reality of modern life and nothing wrong with it like this idea that we are glued to each other from dot um when I mean especially as someone and I'm sure like loads of people I don't live where I grew up um and I still have very very strong friendships in that place yeah but we go through ebbs and flows of course because of you know that's life yeah exactly and this idea much like the expectations that we place on romantic love Mm. that it has to last forever in order for it to be deemed successful yeah um it's a failure if it ends and and again I just don't think that's a realistic expectation on female friendship as it isn't within romantic relationships so I wanted to put a character in there as well Ivy who's somebody that Matilda's never met and kind of show how sometimes women come into our lives right when we need them. Yes. You know, yeah. we'll that exact moment that we need them. And we have the most intense, life-changing experiences with them. But at the end of the book, you kind of know that, you know, when they all come to move out, which I don't think is a spoiler, you 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 sort of real you know that Ivy and Matilda are not going to hang out or chat on the phone every day. Or probably They're not going to see each other. They don't need to be besties for the rest no. of their lives. They've given something really important to each other at a certain point in their lives. Yeah. And yeah, which that again does feels ring realistic. really true. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It really rings very, very true. Yeah. yeah. And then Constance, oh my God. I I mean I adore Constance. That was, and she's a woman in her 80s. So that was kind of exploring intergeneral uh, friendships, intergenerational friendships, sorry. Um, And I think actually, Penny, that circles back around to grief because Mm, I was like, what would happen if you put these two characters in a room where one of them, like Constance, has lost everyone in their life? Constance has lost her mum and dad. She's lost her husband. She's lost some of her children. She's lost many of her friends. Grief and loss is so such a kind of intrinsic part of her identity. Mm. Whereas for Matilda, this young woman, she's experiencing this grief for the first time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what can those two people teach each other? Yeah. How can they help one another? And that for me was the interesting 
thread there, I think. Yeah, that's so interesting because it's it's very true, I think, um, that what's interesting about ageing is becoming accustomed to grief in a way. It's something that you learn to live with because the mm. older you get, if you've been lucky enough to have lots of people in your life that you love, you will yeah. lose them and you will start to lose them. Um, and if you're lucky enough, like Constance, to have a long life, that's inevitable. Um, so yeah, that juxtaposition is really beautiful. And yeah, it's just, it's one of my favorite aspects of the book actually was that relationship. It was so yeah, enjoyable to read. Mine too. Um, but so I would love to talk with you about um, your experience writing it because, of course, you were in pretty unique position in the sense that, you know, you really understood and very much knew the back end of the industry mm -hmm. when you yeah. started to write. And I can imagine that was both a positive and quite a massive negative as well. And I guess I want to know how how on earth were you able to kind of almost put that aside and allow yourself the space to be a beginner, I guess, in, in this space? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. It, it, that. That's the thing, isn't it? Because I had a lot of knowledge and experience, but as a writer, as a, as a novelist, I was a complete beginner cutting my teeth. So those two things uh, sitting side by side. There are definitely, I definitely do know people in the industry who are like, right, I'm going to sit down and write a psychological thriller because I'm selling these for six figures. And if I, I can do that, <laughs> and if I sit down and I do it, I can just get myself on the property ladder and then, you know, and there's people that do do, do, do that. Who I think have an understanding <laughs> of like what's selling well and can write to that brief, which is incredible and, and admirable in, in its own way, I suppose. But I definitely, I definitely wasn't integrating kind of what's hot now, what's working in the market. What well, I wasn't employing my agent hat when I was writing because I just couldn't have. It would have stunted all creativity. And I actually think it yeah. would have just made for a really crappy book. Um, so I just shut that part of myself off. I think also as well, because when I started writing this book, I wasn't consciously sitting down to write a novel. Mm. I just felt like I was drying up creatively. My job is very, very creatively demanding in that it's all about creative collaboration, helping authors, developing their books, editing their books. I love that. I thrive off that. But I knew I needed something that was just mine yeah. and a space where I could just pour my creativity into it and keep it for myself. So it really started from setting aside a couple of hours on a Saturday morning to write for joy. Mm -hmm. And it was blissful and pleasurable and I loved it. And then eventually I thought, okay, what are you writing about here? What are these reoccurring themes such as like female shame or grief or the things I was exploring? And then that's how the idea formed. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly I was in a place where I had quite a lot of words on the page to start thinking about how to how to turn it into a, into a novel. I mean, it was a bit of nonfiction. It was a bit of prose. It was a bit of poetry. But in terms of themes, I think... Um, so it wasn't, I think if I said to myself, right, Abby, sit down and write a novel, that would have been too terrifying. Yeah. I And, and maybe in some unconscious level, I was doing that, but I certainly wasn't conscious of it at the yeah. time. Well, that's so great. And I love that because it really sounds like you allowed yourself to play. Mm. And I think so often um, there's such a kind of, I guess, almost heaviness around the idea of writing a book. I'm going to go write a book yes. that I think that it's, starting from a place of playing and allowing yourself to put some words on the page is such a great place to start. But I love that you were able to see 
that it was taking shape and that it was taking some form. So when you decided that it was yeah. going to be a novel, yeah. um, is there was there some strategies you put in place to kind of keep yourself accountable or um, or anything like that, knowing that, you know, usually you're working at another end where yeah. there are deadlines and all sorts of things. Is there anything that you had to put in place or did you have to, did you keep it also completely secret from friends? Yes, it was a complete secret from friends. Nobody knew. And I remember now vividly a couple of my closest friends getting really frustrated with me why why you know whenever we go out on a Friday you leave early you never want to go out anymore like you won't ever commit to like coming to a gallery on a Saturday or be brunch like what's going on you know I think taking it personally as a me distancing myself from them but of course it wasn't that but I wasn't I didn't feel ready to talk about what I was doing um and then when I did it, it all made sense and they were of course very very supportive but um The other thing that you asked about, which was really interesting, um, sorry, it slipped my, I'm trying to find it. The accountability, how you held yourself Ah, accountable. Exactly, the accountability. That was hilarious because of course my job is all deadlines, time restrictions. At that time I was uh, running a literary agency. I was looking after nearly 50 plus authors internationally. I was managing a team of two. My job was insane, you know, Monday to f- through Friday, it was, it was just about work. And so when I then came to go, okay, you're writing a novel. If you do this many words a month over this, ma- over this many months, you'll have a finished draft by this date. And I sat and I planned it all out and sh- showed what my word count could be. And I didn't write for about a month mm-hmm. because I turned it into work. Right. I turned it into another thing that I had to deliver on. I'd put expectations. I had to hit word counts. I had to do a certain amount of hours. And the second I did that, I think just creatively, my body and mind just went, no, 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 no. (laughs) We're doing enough of that Monday through Friday. I couldn't possibly. So I just went, okay, fine, scrap that. I write when I want to write and I finish when I want to finish. And lo and behold, that was when I got to the point where I was like delivering food to my door twice a day. And not getting dressed because I was just sat in bed writing for like mm-hmm. six, seven hours, um, which comes with its own complications as well. Because, you know, I, I have uh, talked openly about the fact that I suffered from burnout. And although that happened a few years after I finished the book, I definitely think it played some part, mm. although there were, of course, a lot of other things going on. Yeah. So sort of it was the it was part of the lead up. Yeah, which which became unsustainable, and this is the thing, isn't it? Because I think um, it's sort of easy to kind of talk about like tips and tricks we might, mm. you know, put ourselves through to to kind of in order to do work alongside all of our other work, mm-hmm. but um, but it often comes at a cost, um, yes. and and I find that for me, I like to think of it as like, well, I'm, if I'm taking on one thing, I'm giving up something else. And I just have to make sure it's an exchange and it's always an exchange. And that exchange might be your health at some point or Mm -hmm. your sanity, um, which I've, you know, the pandemic has (laughs) very much proven. Um, But I think in a way, if you think of it as an exchange and like, what are you willing to give up for this? Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, sometimes it just comes down to really basics, like, okay, what I'm giving up is a tidy garden and a tidy house. And um, I'm also, my children are seeing me work much more than they would otherwise and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I have to kind of constantly evaluate whether that's an exchange I'm okay with making. And I think yeah. if we make those exchanges consciously and make yes. that choice and understand that we're giving something up in order to do it, then it sort of 
I don't know, perhaps sits more comfortably with us um, if it's a conscious decision. I couldn't agree more. And I think, Penny, that's like so, so, so important because for me, it wasn't conscious. Mm. And I'm really mindful to not sit and try and be that example of like, yeah, I wrote my novel on the side of my full-time busy demanding job. Like, you can do it. Like, Like, no, I mean absolutely not first of all I had the huge privilege of eventually you know working hard for over 10 years but eventually I was in a position where I could afford to rent a you know tiny flat in London to myself yeah which enabled me the space to write which was absolutely game-changing but also I wouldn't recommend the way I did it the way that I did it is not sustainable I couldn't do it now either yeah. this this you know this is why I've set up my consultancy and I'm working now in the way that I'm working because there's no way I could do that again yeah a- absolutely not and the thought terrifies me and I just think I want to be really honest and open about that yeah because it's important because what I gave up what I exchanged was relationships yeah. romantic relationships certainly I that was d- null and void completely dead I gave up I sacrificed you know, relationships with my friends, although I'm very blessed that they stuck around and were understanding of that commitment. And I sacrificed my health, yeah. which is never worth it. No. Ever. No. Um, and of course, I wasn't conscious of that at the time. At the time, yes, I was. Of course. Of I course. was in my bliss. Yeah. I loved my job. I was writing all weekend. I was loving this creative project. I was in my bliss. I was so happy. I was going 100 miles an hour. I just wasn't, con- I wasn't aware. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think sitting down and going, what am I going to exchange? What's worth it and what's not is really, really essential. Um, and I hope for my second book, I just get to write it again from a place of just joy and bliss of just, I'm going to, I'm in the moon. I'm going to sit down tonight. I'm just going to write and see what comes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and on that note, do you think that's, are you giving yourself time now to wait until you feel like you're in that place before you, before you embark on a creative project again? Yeah, I've started. So I, I've, I have started and I've got the idea kind of down on paper, um, I've tried to really plot it out and plan the novel in a way that I'd wish I'd done earlier. But again, it's just frozen my creativity and my writing. And so like I know. Work, 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 yeah. sort of, yeah, coming at you. Yeah. Exactly. I know. Yeah. Realistically, I just need to sit down on a Friday um, and just write and just see what comes. Yeah. I, you know, I, my, my deal was a one book deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm kind of in discussions with my agent now is actually getting that second book deal so that I've got accountability and I've yeah. got a, a publisher and an editor saying to me, right, you need to deliver the first draft by this date because almost to do it, yeah. because I have changed my lifestyle now where writing is part of my job and my work. So I think I do need that accountability and that deadline to work towards. Otherwise I'm just willy nilly being like, oh, I'll just do it when I'm in my bliss, which also is not realistic. <laughs> I also need to... <laughs> Uh, you know, have some formality around it. So, so, it, so that's a change for me. And I think the experience of writing the second one will be very, very different. That's really interesting. And actually, Ali and I were just talking about this, um, this recently about how our writing has changed because our projects have changed. And, um, and now how I'm writing is really different. But at the same time, I'm still every now and then realizing that I'm sort of um, need to slightly recreate some of the the circumstances I had to write tender because it actually worked really well for me, which was essentially, I mean, I ended up writing it in like three months. So pretty much. And so weirdly, actually that kind of worked. And so I've decided to now like 
go quite head down and do a draft in the next, like finish a draft in the next three months. And I'm only like one third of the way through. So it's quite a lot. But um, yeah. I've sort of feel like maybe I need to replicate some of the circumstances yeah. in some ways, even though the writing is completely different because it's not commissioned. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, but I have I have got a few things in place, a few people waiting and have put time yeah. in their diary to read it and things like that. And that that's good. That pressure of knowing that someone um, who whose time is very precious has put some time aside in their diary has really helped me yeah. um, to kind of you know be like right I have to take this seriously this is part of my yeah. work even though no one's paying me yet but yeah. Um, but yeah exactly. that's that definitely really helps me as well yeah I think it's I think it's a, essential like as much as I just want to be writing in my joy and my bliss I don't know <laughs> if that's and it'd be interesting because a lot of people that have said to have said to me about what a shame. Um, especially a lot of other novelists have just been like, oh, it's just so, it, like you can just tell that like there's so much joy in the writing. Like a lot yes. of my writer friends have been like, you can just tell that you were absolutely loving every single minute of writing it. And I truly, truly was. Yeah. And I don't know if that will be the experience of the second one because it's going to have to be a bit more strict and work and focus. And I'm probably going to have to force myself to sit down and get on with it when I don't want to and there's resistance. So yeah. I think that's so fascinating how, how your experience of writing plays out differently in the writing itself. I mean, yes. you could write a freaking dissertation about that. So, so fascinating. <laughs> it's so, it is so interesting, isn't it? And I remember we had this conversation you know, a couple of years ago about, um, about feeling excited to write. And you asked me, um, you know, how, how it's going. Are you enjoying it? And I was like, oh, I'm loving every second. And you, and, and you were like, that's so good because I always know I can read that in the writing when it comes out. And yeah. I find, and Such I did love song. writing, Ted, I loved it so much. And I'm enjoying writing what I'm writing now so much to the point where even though I know we talk a lot about how writing is very difficult, but I sometimes feel like we don't talk enough about how joyful writing can be as well. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a conversation that doesn't happen enough um there's a lot of moaning about how difficult it is and it is difficult it's very difficult but it's also joyful definitely when you're in it's kind of you enter that flow state Mm. don't you and and, and it's it's much like reading it's meditative Mm. when you're in and it's flowing and it's coming uh, to have your mind kind of focused in on something like that for kind of 40 minute periods where you're not thinking of anything else, you're just completely in something. Yeah. It's so important for our attention spans, but really freeing from the kind of attention grabbing economy that we live in now, mm. um, attention span economy, you know, it's it's an absolute bliss to sit and be in your writing and for it to be flowing out. And that's completely a joyful state. Yeah. I wish more. I wish more people talked about that, but I don't know. I suppose, like anything, it's those those bad days where you, just start, you know you're sixty thousand words into the book and you call your best friend, like I did, being like, "This is a pile of crap, and I've wasted all of this time, and I'm exhausted, and why have you let me do this?" Because uh, that is also the reality of writing. That's Absolutely. also the reality. Yeah. I like just. I wanted to ask you as well about if you can put on your consultancy and your agent hat on for a yeah. moment. Um, I would love to hear from you about um, when you're on the other side of of the relationship. Um, when people are when people send in submissions to you and things, do you is there something that you see like common mistakes that you see come up time and again that um, is just good to know about so people can be aware whenever they're pitching to people? Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll just mention. Should I mention just first kind of 
Bergstrom Studio and what we do, just yes, so people have do. an idea. Yeah. yeah. So at Bergstrom Studio is basically a 360 publishing consultancy. So the the idea being that if you're a writer, published or unpublished, we will we have a service that will appeal or be useful to you. Um, so on the consultancy side, we offer various uh, editorial packages and services. So that may be that you're in the second or third draft of your novel. Perhaps you've sent it out to agents, you've had some feedback, but you haven't quite been able to get it over the edge yet. And we'll do an entire kind of edit, uh, thorough line edit, notes, editorial report to kind of help get it to where it needs to be and help you kind of uh, finesse that pitch to really get an agent's attention. Or it could simply just be that you've got an idea for a nonfiction um, book, which I know you do as well, Penny, and we help you pull together a proposal um so all, all sorts of different things we ha- we kind of consult authors on content strategies um and various other bits and bobs so so that's what we that's what we do um on the submission front i would say the huge bugbear for me and this happens quite a, i mean this might feel like an obvious one but it happens so much is just when you get these really long meandering stream of conscious emails from people that are kind of telling you like, oh, I've tried to do this and it hasn't worked out. And an agent came back and said this and I've done this and that. And almost people sort of telling you about the history of their process with trying to get this book published. And I think like with all due respect, don't bring that to an agent's door because they don't really care. It's not really useful for them. And I think one of my biggest tips is like, you should be starting each interaction with a new person totally afresh and saving that conversation for kind of, friends or other people because you just don't have time to get into the meat of why something hasn't worked out or um how's you know how many how long someone's been working on it it's if you're gonna send something to an agent you need to send a really clear concise well thought out pitch and I always say that one of the most essential um things or helpful things is a bridge so Mm. for example the Sunday Times uh described what shame as fleabag with a sprinkling of the occult that's a bridge that mm. tells somebody who's never read my book exactly what to expect by other cultural or, uh, you know, touchstones. So the, the example could be, so I um, represented Mrs. Hinch. And when I first went out and started pitching her books, I pitched it as Mary Kondo meets Towie. So That's people, still one of my favorite bridges, I have to it's say. It's one of my favorite it's bridges. Classic. <laughs> I, and I because know. it is so, it's so, you're so instantly able to tell exactly what you're talking about with that reference. Exactly. Like it's, it is, yeah, exactly. And I, um, yeah, I I agree. I just love that the concept of a bridge so much. And I think yeah. I've worked with clients that have found that so helpful because it is about it's all about being concise, isn't it? It's about being yeah. concise and being really clear about what your project is. Um yeah. and any way that you can do that, the better. And if yes. you end up having a conversation later with an agent in person, that can potentially be a time where you can talk about some of the things that are working and not working and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think like in the initial email, it should be framing the idea and and what it is. Um, And then of course, you know, attaching some sample material. I also get people sometimes that send me 40,000 words of novels going like, Hey, this is my novel. Um, I don't really want to finish it or do any more work on it. If it's not going to see the light of day. So could you like have a look and tell me that? drives me nuts it's because it's like (laughs) I'm sorry honey but we've all got to do the legwork up front you've got to write the novel you've got to finish the book it's not like nonfiction. you can't get it commissioned off a proposal and you have to finish it and of course it's 
daunting the idea of putting so much work and effort into it and it never eventually getting published but that's just the way it is and I and I I, you know you have you've got to put that work in first and I I understand the fear around that but there's no point in sending me a novel that's 40,000 words I won't even read it because it's not done it's not it's you haven't done the work yet for me to be able to do the work that's sorry on the agenting front yes I was gonna say that I work with so many authors that's a perfect time to send it to perfect time and I love working with consultant if you're in that position and I think this is and this is a really good point to come back to I think it is sometimes really worth investing in support if you can afford it Yes, you are trying to make that decision, that exchange that we talked about of time versus something else, Um, because sometimes having some input at a certain point is going to help you make that decision about whether the exchange is worth it. 100%. 100%. Yeah, exactly that. And you know, I find that process so fulfilling. That's what it's one of my favorite things to do is working on people's novels. And I work with a lot of, you know, Sunday Times bestselling published authors on their novels when they're on book two or three and they're stuck and they're kind of halfway through and they've looked, they're like, oh, I need someone else to be in this with me. And yeah, another pair of eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. And you get to sit with the author and be like, well, how about if this happens? How about, you know, you develop the plot with them, you expand on characterization with them, you, you know, it's world building, all of this. Um, but that's, I guess, a very different role to an agent. Um, so that's probably a, an interesting or an important distinction for people to know. Yeah, yeah. And um, and as well, I think what's so interesting and why I love talking to agents um, on the podcast is this idea of, you know, I think there's sometimes this idea of, of, um, of an us and them. And I don't think it has to be like that at all. You know, I think no. as agents, you know, agents like publishers are looking for really great books they want really great books they want you to send the good books um and so I think it's so nice to have these conversations just to encourage people to um do the work and then contact the agents um because they want your excellent books they do and it's you know so part like such a I mean the founding ethos for Bergstrom Studio is exactly that it's I want to demystify. I want to completely break down that those them versus us. It's like, you know, even I guess in, in the in the sense of what what I'm doing, I'm doing like so much and different bits of it, and it's showing people. Sometimes people will come to me with like an incredible nonfiction idea, but the way that they've gone about presenting it is all wrong, and that simply comes down to just having that nugget of knowledge of yeah. how an agent will expect to see something set out and how you need to slightly frame something or integrating my market knowledge to go ah actually if you took this tack this would this would really really work and come across as a really well not come across but would be a really fresh approach on what you're on the subject matter you're wanting to write about Mm. and um I'm just so all for that in the long term I would love to be in a position to run courses that were slightly more affordable and accessible Mm. for people Mm -hmm. um because I know the one-to-one consultation as you say like it is expensive because it takes so much time to edit a novel and write an editorial report it is very very time consuming I know this is the thing as well and um that I work one-to-one with people as well. And it's yeah. it's such a joy. It's so fun. And I've just done a retreat as well. And doing that in a really intense way is so enjoyable. Yeah. Um, but it is um, obviously very time consuming and so not always easy. But, um, but there are, I think, more and more, um, there's more and more information out there as well to, to help you on your way if, um, if you just need little bits of help. Um, but yeah, so Thank you so much for that. That's it's so helpful. Um, 
And just to finish up, I mean, we always have a little chat about what we've been reading. Um, mm-hmm. So what have you read anything lately that um, excites you? I have. I've been, I've just finished um, a novel that's publishing in March by Trapeze called Wet Paint by Chloe Ashby, mm-hmm. um, which is actually a, a, another story about grief and about this uh, character who has, um, actually, I won't, it'll be a spoiler if I say, but <laughs> but this character who is coming apart at the seams through grief and is kind of floundering through it. But Chloe uh, studied at Courtauld, the Institute of mm-hmm. um, History of Art, and there's beautiful art references and um, kind of really like deeply embedded metaphorical um, things happening around works of art and what they mean to us and how they function to help us kind of look differently or be able to cope with the kind of existential truths of of death and pain and depression. Um, so yeah, it's a debut and she's just a really interesting writer and I love the title, Wet Paint. It's a great title. And I, I want to read it even more now that I know about the art history stuff, because mm. I just, I love it when a book gets really heavy into detail of something quite specific, especially mm. if it's something that I don't know as much about. I just, yeah. oh, I love it. It's just so enjoyable. What about you? What are you reading? I have just finished um, Chen Julie Wang's memoir, Beautiful Country, about being growing up undocumented in New York. Oh mm-hmm. my goodness. I feel like it's probably the best memoir I've read in a really long time. Really? It is so stunning. She just somehow has captured that child voice so, so precisely um, without overdoing it. Um, you just completely are in the shoes of this small girl arriving in New York. I think she's seven when she arrives in New York from China. Um, and the book is set, I think, over about five, a five-year period and about the shock of what she went through being removed from her home um, where they had quite a nice life in China. Both her parents were professors, but her dad felt very strongly about leaving China um, mm-hmm. with, you know, he has a lot of trauma from the Cultural Revolution through his family and was mm-hmm. was determined mm-hmm. to make it to America. And right. their life is, you know, really, really torn apart by poverty and a hu- the huge fear that's with them constantly as uh, undocumented people. Um, and it's just, it's heartbreaking, but it's also incredibly beautiful and stunning and just, yeah, her voice is incredible. And yeah, wow, I want to read it. What yeah. was the title again? Uh, beautiful Country. Beautiful Country. Okay, I'm going to look it up. It is just divine. So yes, I would highly recommend it. Thank you so much for being here, Abigail. It was such a pleasure to chat about, about what a shame um, and about your work at Bergstrom Studio. It was just, yeah, delight. I've loved it. Thank you so much, Penny. 